From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. You're listening to artist Martha Redbone singing a piece from Talking Circles, a song cycle that she's developing with her partner Aaron Whitby at the New York Theatre Workshop. The song is called, Is It Safe? And it's sung by a black female character in 2020. She's grappling with the threat of a global pandemic. Is it safe to leave home? Will she catch this terrifying virus? And also the threat of police violence. Is it safe to leave home? Will she be shot for the crime of driving while black? But Talking Circles is not just a contemporary story. If we don't fight, we fall. You know, we're trying to think about COVID and look at it in a historical context, making some parallels between the Spanish flu and now. That's Aaron Whitby, Martha's songwriting partner, as well as partner partner. This pandemic has just highlighted inequality, economic inequality. It made it more apparent to those who might not have been paying attention. It is about protest and change. But we're kind of looking through the eyes of women of color, you know, particularly Native and Black women, as it really. And which is obviously, yeah, you know. and I can and I can um, fill in from there. And that, once again, is singer songwriter Martha Redbone, who is also on the board of Brick. One of the things that the pandemic has brought to us was taking the time to reflect and regroup. You know, we've all had to run out to supermarkets and kind of mask up and all of that and pray that we don't get sick on the way back. And at the same time, when you're at the supermarket, right in the very beginning, you know, these long lines of people buying flour and yeast, all of a sudden it was like everyone was baking bread. Did you notice that? <laughs> Did yeah, you notice that? absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone was just baking bread. And it made me start thinking about kind of going back to what our grandparents would be doing in a crisis situation. You know, as bad as this is and as bad as this feels, our ancestors have gone through far worse. Genocide, holocausts, slavery, all kinds of things. And that's what led us to delving into the flu of you know, 1918 and what happened there. What were the lessons there? What can we learn from the pandemic 100 years ago 
also at the same time of the Spanish flu, which wasn't really Spanish, one of the things that was going on at the same time were marches for inequality and injustices done to Black people throughout the South. So they had, you know, the silent uh, marches down Fifth Avenue and, and different locations around, you know, New York and New Jersey. And so with current, you know, coronavirus pandemic, you know, was the uprising of Black Lives Matter. And so just very similar parallels of things that have been going on. Injustices to Black people have been happening since the beginning of time. And I'm thinking, what have we learned or have we learned at all about humanity? Why do we march? We march because by the grace of God and the force of truth, the dangerous, hampering walls of prejudice and human injustices must fall. We march because we want to make impossible a repetition of Waco, Memphis, and East St. Louis by rousing the conscience of the country and bring the murderers of our brothers, sisters, and innocent children to justice. We march because the growing consciousness and solidarity of race, coupled with sorrow and discrimination, have made us one. A union that may never be dissolved in spite of shallow-brained agitators, scheming pundits, and political tricksters who secure a fleeting popularity and uncertain financial support by promoting the disunion of a people who ought to consider themselves as one. These words are from a flyer promoting a peaceful protest, and the only way you would know it's from 1917 and not 2020 was because the language is a little flowery. On January 28, 1917, some eight months before a pandemic would descend on New York City and the rest of the world, nearly 10,000 Black Americans marched down Fifth Avenue from 59th Street to Madison Square, silent except for the beating of muffled drums. The event was organized by the NAACP, not even 10 years old in 1917, and the marchers were protesting, well, racism, of course, but more specifically, recent lynchings in Waco and Memphis, and a race riot in East St. Louis where scores of Black people were murdered by a white mob. Newsreels from that time, we would play them for you, but they are of course silent, show men in dark suits and straw boaters women in ankle-length white dresses, some carrying parasols, and children, girls in white, holding hands. They march in orderly rows, more like a military parade than the modern-day scrum of protests. Some hold signs. One reads, 12,000 of us fought with Jackson at New Orleans. Another, make America safe for democracy. A third, your hands are full of blood. Martha, can you talk a little bit about the role that music had in your life when you were growing up in Appalachia? Absolutely. You know, being a child in, in Harlan County, Kentucky, you know, it's a small coal mining town and you have one radio station. So in that radio station, you know, you get a spread of everything. You know, when you're on um, the East Coast or say like, you know, like New York City, you know, you have a station dedicated to rock you know, dedicated to, you know, R&B, dedicated to the blues, dedicated to jazz. But we didn't have those options back in those days. So, you know, we had Dolly Parton. Playing alongside Parliament Funkadelic. 
you know, <laughs> and and then you'd have BB King. The thrill is gone, baby. And then you'd have Conway Twitty. Hope you're doing fine, It's just how it was, you know, and so we were really all rounders growing up in Kentucky. And um, and then, of course, you know, you add that to your kind of daily, you know, life in a small town where, you know, you have everyone goes to church on Sundays and people sit on the porch after supper and, and fiddle and, you know, and, and play the banjos or guitars and singing, sometimes here singing throughout the hollers, you know, in the evenings. That's kind of the way mountain life was for me as a kid. So I was very lucky to have that. And then I moved to Brooklyn. And the sixth grade, you know, and then you have the sounds of the city. I spent kind of like my preteens and all throughout high school living in pre-gentrified Brooklyn. So a very different looking Brooklyn to what we see today, you know, and I guess I, I grew up in what was known as the hood. And, you know, and that was the sound of the streets, you know, hip hop and reggae music. Pretty much, you know, we lived in an Afro-Caribbean neighborhood and it was Panamanian and Latina and we had, you know, salsa on one corner, merengue on the other corner, and reggae music on another. All of these things have become a part of, I guess, intrinsically of everything that I am and where I came from. If you've heard of Harlan County, Kentucky, maybe it's because of the 1976 documentary Harlan County, USA, about striking coal miners. Or maybe it's because of the Brad Paisley song, You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. Those are the types of cultural touchstones a lot of us probably have for rural Appalachia. That and Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn. And if you were a CBS viewer circa 1994, Christy. The Great Smokies. When I left my city home to be a school teacher at a backwoods mission, I dreamed of adventure. I wasn't ready for the real challenges of life in these mountains. I'd have given up, if not for the children. I came to Cutter Gap to teach, but they show me every day that I am here to learn. I was really into this show when I was a kid, and I will describe it to you from memory alone. There's this young woman named Christy, and she's a teacher, and she has 90s bangs like Candace Cameron on Full House, but the show does not take place in the 90s. It's like maybe 1910? Definite Anne of Green Gables vibes where it's supposed to be old-timey, but it's undeniably the late 80s or early 90s. Anyway, Christy is a teacher from the big city, and she's very young, and she has two speeds, earnest and extremely earnest. And she comes to Cutter Gap to teach in a rural community, and she has to win the trust of the locals and convince parents that their kids should be in school. And also there's Time Daily and a love triangle. And every episode features a heartfelt lecture from Christy where she's like, you listen here, Mr. Potter. Mariah is smart, about as smart as I've ever seen. And I am not going to let you stand in the way of her learning her letters. We are not talking about my spirit, doctor. We are talking about education. John Spencer and Bessie Coburn may have to marry unless someone teaches them the facts of life. And Rob Allen, who dreams of becoming a writer, is losing his eyesight from poor diet and candlelight. The only hope these children have is education, which is what this mission provides. It is not a good show. After watching a few clips on YouTube, my producer Isabel correctly described it as Lassie meets Legends of the Fall minus the budget. 
It's also high-key Christian propaganda in the same vein as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or A Wrinkle in Time, but this I was not aware of as a child. But another thing that is noteworthy about this show is that even though the main characters are all white and it reinforces stereotypes about the nobility of poverty, and I'm sure if I were to rewatch it today, I would find one million highly problematic things to talk about, there are Black characters. There's LeVar Burton. There's a whole storyline about a Black community thriving in the hills and the tension between LeVar's character, who wants to be a doctor, and his dad, who doesn't want him to get killed by the Klan. I have no idea if this was the first mainstream depiction of people of color living in Appalachia, but it's certainly the first one I remember. It's something that I guess uh, most people aren't really aware of. People are really surprised that there are you know, people of color and then their hills and black people in their hills. I mean, this has always been the case. I was raised by my grandparents in Kentucky and my grandfather was part of the great migration to the north of people from the Delta who came up to work. And at the same time that the miners were going on strike, I mean, everyone knows the stories uh, where the bosses would put ads in the papers in the South. And so people who were sharecropping saw that there were jobs and promises for a better life than sharecropping, which was, you know, an extension of slavery, basically. And so my grandfather, who was a sharecropper, you know, migrated north and, and ended up in Kentucky as a coal miner. And there had been people of color, black coal miners and Spanish coal miners, Portuguese coal miners, Turkish ones had been coming to that region since the 1800s. And uh, when my grandpa got there, you know, he was a young man and he ended up meeting my grandma there. Now my grandpa was Choctaw and African-American. And I guess when he got there, he was also looking for an indigenous person and, and he um, ended up meeting my grandma there. And the rest is history. And your grandma also uh, is Native American? My grandma's Cherokee, Shawnee. She's Cherokee Shawnee woman. And um, they were from those hills from the beginning of time. I'm curious about what happened then to your identity or the way that you thought of your identity when you moved to Brooklyn. You know, having been raised by your grandparents who, who have these indigenous roots in Appalachia and then moving to Brooklyn, where, as you said, it was more of an Afro-Caribbean diaspora. What did people perceive you to be in, and did that impact the way that you thought about your indigenous heritage at all? So I didn't really have a label for our racial identity until I came to New York and people were asking when they saw my mom, you know, is that Chinese lady your mother? And I would say, she's not Chinese, she's Indian. I would say, you know, back then, back in those days, we'd say, we always said Indian because my mom is old school, you know, and people were like, Indians are dead. And so um, it was the kids in the street who told me that I had to choose people force you to choose a side, especially when you come from different cultures. And then also other people want to define you and put you in a box so that they can feel more comfortable with themselves. And so, you know, I'm very aware and proud of my Blackness and of my African-American story. I mean, I get my voice from my dad. I look like my dad. I just have my mom's skin tone. But I remember my mother once telling me at one point as a teenager with my fist in the air, embracing my blackness, you know, and saying society treats me as a black woman and I'm a proud black African woman. And I remember my mother saying to me, you know, 
society once saw us as merciless savages, that we were not human. Society also wrote in the Constitution that the African counts as three-fifths of a man. So do you always accept what society tells you that you are? And that's always stayed with me. And then the other thing that my mother would say, very, very important, do not participate in the genocide of your own people. Mm. Don't participate in the genocide of your own people. So if someone is telling you you have to choose, you're Black, you're not Native American, you're not this or whatever. And there's my mother who worked two jobs to put me through school, and she was a single mom. How can I negate the existence of this woman who's helped raise me, whose parents raised me? You know, how could I not say that I'm Cherokee, Shawnee, and Choctaw? How could I say that when these were the people who raised me? How can I just eliminate that and just wipe away my family and just say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Black. And so I chose to honor that, to honor them, to honor our story, to honor the struggle. And I'm here today because of them. Songs usually get banned by the morality police for lyrics that allegedly incite teens to violence. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. Or encourage them to have sex, especially if it's non-procreative. You said this chicken your last time, because now I've got the pill. Or excessively French. But as far as I know, the only song that has been banned that contains exactly zero words at all is Link Ray's Rumble. Rumble is an instrumental track released as a single in 1958. It was one of the first rock songs to play with distortion, feedback, and power chords. Teens loved it. Adults clutched their pearls, and I get it, those licks are nasty. So nasty, in fact, that it was banned from the airwaves in New York and other markets because censors feared that kids would hear that primal, crunchy guitar and start fornicating and brawling. I learned about all this from the very good documentary, Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World. Link Ray and his brothers, who performed with him as the Ray Men, were Shawnee, and they grew up in 1930s North Carolina, hiding from the KKK and passing as white when they could to avoid the threat of violence. Rumble the documentary examines not only the erasure of Link Ray's native heritage, but also that of Charlie Patton, the father of the Delta Blues, Mildred Bailey, the queen of swing, Jimi Hendrix, and Robbie Robertson of the band. In the film, Robertson says his mother, who is Mohawk, told him, be proud you're an Indian but be careful who you tell. The most fascinating part of this doc is about how the origins of jazz and blues pull from indigenous music traditions, from certain rhythmic percussive beats to specific vocal tones and inflections that when you play them alongside native music, you're like, oh yeah, those things are definitely related. Many pioneers of these genres, like Charlie Patton, were from the American South, where for centuries the bloodlines of Native Americans and the descendants of Africans have intermingled. But like Martha said, it's easier to put people in boxes. So many musicians of mixed Black and Native ancestry were just considered Black, 
And so it follows that the blues and jazz are considered purely African-American art forms, which they are, of course, but those distinctly American musical genres also owe a great debt to indigenous American musical traditions. It's there if you're listening for it. You two are partners both personally as well as professionally. Is that right? You've been together almost 30 years? Forever, yes. Ancient. <laughs> Is it we're really ancient. that long? It's ancient relics. Yeah. <laughs> They're the type of couple who finish each other's sentences. I'm really a pianist. And I'm I, really a storyteller. Yeah, so we just brought very different... Music vocabularies. Vocabularies, yeah. but I, I think we just... It was just... Uh, very complimentary. Yeah, we, we filled in each other's weaknesses. Aaron and Martha met through a mutual friend and started working together professionally as songwriters in the corporate music world. I think it was in your TED Talk you said something about how for the corporate music world, it was so much easier for them to market your cleavage than it was for them to market your incredibly <laughs> nuanced story about your family heritage. Yeah, I mean, and it was difficult to market my cleavage because I don't have that much. <laughs> And there were some interesting experiences back in the corporate world. Yes. <laughs> you know, ranging from sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, there's one guy who did tell her, you know, I remember back to in England. To... Yeah, he says, oh, man, if I were you, you should go in and you should just kind of light up a peace pipe and just sit there in the A&R office and that, um, which was kind of highly offensive. And then there's other guys who would say, well, I mean, essentially, what, what's this native stuff? No one cares. And they said, you know, you know? Native Americans don't buy records. Yeah. You know, they're, they're trying to eat. They're trying to eat. They're not buying records. I remember that one. Yeah. In 2012, Martha and Aaron released an album where they set the poems of William Blake to music, and they started touring, and these live performances led to more theatrical experiments. They composed the music for the Public Theater's 2015 revival of For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. They've created interdisciplinary musical works with Brick and Joe's Pub, and all this brings us to their current project, Talking Circles. So what is a talking circle? In Indigenous cultures, it's a way for all of us to gather together to have a discussion on something that we may agree or disagree on. If someone will hold an object, it could be a feather, it could be a pipe, it could be something. But basically, the person who is holding the object is the person who gets to hold the floor and then everyone else respects the person while they speak. And when you're done saying your piece, then you pass it on to the next person who chooses to speak. Discussions sometimes, you know, can go on for several days. It's a respectful way for people to have uh, a discussion, even if there's um, a debate or a kind of disagreement or dispute. Martha and Aaron's songs will take us from the present into the past, where we'll meet three nurses. The Red Cross wouldn't bring black nurses, nurses of color. They wouldn't use them. They put them on reserve in the First World War. But again, they didn't want uh, black nurses to do anything with white soldiers, but they would actually take them over. Sometimes some people would go to Europe and they would allow to actually look after German POWs rather than good Americans. Again, suffrage, women's suffrage was obviously very alive issue at the time, but again, there were a lot of racial politics in that. The suffrage movement was in full swing in 1918, and it owes a tremendous debt to Native American women. White suffragettes were heavily influenced by the matrilineal societies of the Iroquois nation, 
And while the women we remember from history class, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, were white, Native women, like Sitkala Shaw and Marie Baldwin, had to fight not only for the right to vote as women, but also as Indigenous Americans. The NWACP had been formed, I guess, around 1910-ish, I think, around then. And these were early marches, which they were involved in. So there was so many of the things we're dealing with today, not just for disease, which was, again, very similar. Uh, you know, it was masks, it was social distancing, it was they basically had to deal with it quite similar to us, with the same mistakes and the same politics. But the, uh, the social justice issues were uh, alive and <laughs> still alive and well now. So those are other things which are becoming threads to, to link the past and the, and the present. I think we tend to see the march of history as one of forward progress. The arc is long, but linear and moving in the right direction, which is why something like COVID is such a shock to the system. It's like, sure, the flu took out millions of people in 1918, but since then we put a man on the moon and invented the internet and Hot Pockets. How can 100 years later we be going through the same thing? How can our primary defenses, wear a mask, wash your hands, be the same ones we had a century ago? Isn't there an app for this yet? Perhaps even more tiring than the enduring fragility of the human body is the continuing violence faced by marginalized communities. When I read that NAACP flyer for the silent parade of 1917, I cycled through anger and exhaustion and disbelief. It's the same shit. In the intervening century, women secured the right to vote and gay people got married and Barack Obama became president, but we are still marching because black people get murdered all the time by public employees with impunity. All that can feel so hopeless. And like, what's the point if history is not a linear arc and we're just doomed to repeat it again and again? I think it's helpful for me to instead think of history as a spiral or a slinky. We circle back, we repeat our mistakes. We look around and think, haven't I been here before? But unlike a circle, with a spiral, we're not just retreading the same path again and again. We're moving upwards, slowly but surely. Martha Redbone and Aaron Whitby's Talking Circles is a work in progress, and you can find video of workshop performances as part of New York Theatre Workshop's Artistic Instigator Series. Go to nytw.org.